So yeah, don't do what I did. <laughs> Be more proactive and, <laughs> and uh, get the calls, but, calls organised. And that's the thing though, when you're in the military and you're flying every day and, and it's busy, you know, being in army, especially army aviation, you are busy. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day gang, Taryn Ryan is today's guest in episode 78. In this one we're going to tackle transitioning out of the military and into a civilian job as a helicopter pilot. We chat about some of the considerations you should think about and some tips that can make the, the change easier. Taryn learned to fly in the South African Air Force before moving into the civil EMS role and then marine pilot transfers both in South Africa. Taryn then moved across the Indian Ocean to join Australian Army Aviation, and most recently Taryn has exited defence again and is currently back flying marine pilot transfer, this time in Australia, while also picking up some university study around human factors in aviation. In the chat we find out a little bit more about the career path that Taryn took and some of the similarities between the military to civil transition from two different countries. Even if you've never been in the military, there's some great uh, job search tips in here and some career advice. To start us off, I asked Taryn to talk about the aircrew training that the South African Air Force puts their pilots through. Yeah, so the South African Air Force uh, uses the PC-7, the Pilatus PC-7 uh, Mark II aircraft, which is fairly similar to what the uh, uh, Australian Defence Force used to have with the PC-9. Um, so turboprop, little tandem-seater aircraft that we would use for our pilot training, our initial pilot training. So it's quite a thing being uh, thrown into an aircraft that does 100 and, sorry, about 200 knots, actually, <laughs> as your first flying experience. And was uh, it your first flying like, experience or had you done anything else beforehand? Yeah, no, that was my first flying experience was jumping into the front seat of a PC-7. Gotcha. Okay. And how many, how many hours are you doing that? Um, so when I went through pilot training, which was in 2004, um, at that stage, we still did about 200 hours um, on the pilot course, and it took about a year of the training to, to get through that. Subsequent courses after me, they actually landed up cutting down that amount of hours just because it took so long and it's obviously very costly too. So I think at the moment they do about 140 hours training. Um, I was fortunate enough to do about 200 hours. And I must admit, I'm not sure what you know the Air Force side for South African what they've got in terms of uh, fixed wing and rotary. But uh, was rotary something you wanted to do? Did you just end up there by by fate? How did that work out? Yeah, well, I purposefully joined the Cybering Air Force to fly helicopters. Growing up, I'd always wanted to be a pilot, and I'd never really considered flying helicopters. To be honest, I'd actually always wanted to fly uh, airlines until I was in the equivalent of year 11 and yeah they landed a Alouette 3 helicopter which is an old French 
bubble-looking helicopter. They landed that on our school rugby field one day, and I took a look at this, and I thought that was pretty amazing. And that when I decided that helicopters seemed way cooler than flying airlines. And is that what you ended up training in? <laughs> yes, it was actually. We were, um, yeah, I landed up training in, in the Yellow X3. That was my initial helicopter qualification course. And then what? What was the operational type you flew then? Uh, then went from there. Um, went on to fly the South African variant of the Super Puma. We called it the Oryx helicopter. Okay. And where did I don't know where, where does South Africa deploy in terms of of missions and things uh, there in Africa? Is there? Did you get around a fair yeah. bit? <laughs> yep, got to see uh, most of the wonderful parts of Africa thanks to my time in the Air Force. We had a permanent deployment in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or the DRC, which is located in pretty much in, right in the middle of, of Africa. And we would rotate through there for about four or five weeks at a time to maybe three times a year. That was our permanent rotation as we'd rotate through as co-pilots and then eventually when we became aircraft captains, you know, we'd, we'd go over there as aircraft captains. But apart from that, we also had um, other deployments along the borders because border protection was uh, one of the requirements of the military, not the police force. So we would do border operations as well as anti-piracy operations on the east coast of Africa up along the coast of Mozambique and in the Mozambican ch- channel that we were also involved in. So is that ship, also, ship boardings or what was, like, what's, a, what's a typical anti-piracy flight? Yeah, so that was, we had, um, so I forget, they saw fly the Dakota DC-3 and, as a maritime surveillance aircraft. So our deployments would be in support of, of the DC-3 if anything happened to them. And we also had a, a Navy uh, Corvette ship that would patrol the channel and they would utilize us to go and do, if they'd seen something, call us out to go and have a look at what, uh, if they'd found anything suspicious or something like that. But it was mainly in support of the, of the Dakota doing the maritime surveillance. So you guys embarked or that was all, for, all offshore? Yeah, it was all, uh, well, it was all onshore stuff for us. Um, we were based uh, because the Corvettes couldn't uh, take the size of the, the Super Puma on board. They had a Lynx helicopter on board. Um, and the time that I was deployed up there, that Lynx helicopter was unserviceable, which was another reason why we were sort of standing in for them at that time. And did you get much of the anti-poaching type things? Did you guys get pulled into that sort of gear? In recent times, yes, the military has been uh, quite involved in that, utilising the Augusta A109 helicopter. Unfortunately, it wasn't really much of a thing when when I was in the Air Force. Um, But in recent times, it's become a fairly big internal deployment that they're also very involved with. All right, well, I guess the guts of what we're going to talk about is transitioning out from the military into into the civil world as a helicopter pilot and uh, some of the pros and cons and, and good tips. But uh, you're yep. fairly unique in the fact that you've done it twice in, in two different countries. <laughs> so you obviously left yeah. the uh, South African Air Force, and then we'll talk about the Australian stuff later on. But after yeah. you know, my notes say you did ten years. What, what was the what was the trigger, I guess, to, to get out, and how did you go about it? And would you have done anything differently to how you, you got out of the out of the Defence Force the first time? So, well, initially, I set myself a goal of um, I wanted to reach the rank of major in South Africa and as well as reach the required hours that civilian 
the civilian sector required, which is normally about 1,500 hours total time that you could start being competitive for jobs and all of that. So once I'd reached that goal, that's when I decided that it might be time for me to go to get out. I'd also um, reached a point in my career where was looking for more. The, the Air Force was scaling back on our flying hours quite considerably due to budget constraints and, and all of that. And I just wanted to, I guess, develop myself more and, and just get out and see what was out there in the civilian sector. How many hours were you averaging a year? Oh, not a lot. We averaged about 120 hours a year. Most of our flying hours came uh, from when we were deployed in, in the Congo and those type of deployments. Once we were back home, it was mainly just training and VIP flights that we would be involved in. So a lot of our hours came from our deployments, which was good because it was great flying while we were there. But then you'd get back home and, and you wouldn't be really flying all that much. And how, how does it work? Do you just write a letter to your CEO and say, hey, I'm getting out? How did that process work? And, and what was the gap between leaving and getting your first um, CV job? Well, it would also be advisable to not leave until you have civilian employment. So this, we had a three-month uh, resignation notice period, which is the same as what the um, Army has over here in Australia. Uh, so I put in my resignation with, you know, and had to still serve the three months. And, and basically I've had a couple of jobs in the pipeline, nothing concrete as yet, and it gave me time to you know, um, establish or finalise you know, one of those jobs to work out, which it ends up working out for me to to transition into um, EMS flying or aeromedical flying, which worked out really well. And was there already, uh, I guess, ex-Air Force people in that job that you used as a bit of a network to get there, or were you the, the only one when you turned up? No, the chief pilot there was also an ex-military guy, which was, so good because he really understood what I would be struggling with during the whole transition from military to civilian. So it was really good to have such a great mentor to to help me with that process. And he was his advice was just invaluable and and especially his patience and understanding. Thanks, imagine. So okay, well, let's fast forward a few bits and pieces. We might come back, but I guess the the guts of it is the the tips along the way. So you did yeah. um, work. So where were you based for for that? I was based in Durban, which is on the east coast of South Africa. And uh, basically, the company that I worked for was called Red Cross Emergency Service. And they had a, a contract with government to provide medical, aeromedical services to people in the rural areas in South Africa. You have to understand there's huge amounts of rural population that don't have easy access to med- good medical facilities. So, uh, most of those areas have one small clinic with one nursing sister, and uh, we'd provide services fly out. You know, if 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 that sister felt like or required, you know, more urgent attention for her patient, they would call us and we'd go out pick up that patient. We had two flight paramedics on board, and we'd fly them back to the to the city hospitals where they'd be able to receive better medical care. And what were you using for that? What, what platform? And um, the Augusta A one one nine. Okay. All right. And then yep. you stepped into the marine pile transfer. So same area or did you have to move for that? Yeah, no, same area, uh, fortunately. And my only reason from stepping from one to the other was the 119 was a single engine helicopter. And I just realized that, unfortunately, on the resume, building single engine 
flying time doesn't really count so much. Everybody wants multi-engine time and, and doing marine pilot transfer stuff. I was going to be flying with a say one and irons again, which I'd flown in the military. So I'm fairly com- comfortable with them. And um, it will be building up that twin time, which is crucial on your CV. And I know you're doing a similar job now, but was it yeah. was it far was it far out? Like how like for you know a twin machine like that was it a fair way offshore for the for the pilot transfer? No, not nearly as far offshore as what I'm going now. And we were our anchorage or the pilot boarding point was about five kilometres offshore. But initially, you know, I had a couple of friends, ex-military flying instructors of mine actually that were flying there at the time and I went to them and, I, and I'd always watch them doing it because when you're sitting on the beach in Durban you, you can see the helicopter flying in and out and and getting wind and it's a big winching operation there too so you watch the helicopter winching with marine pilot off and they do it in all types of weather and sea states and um, all sorts and I always thought it was far too challenging for a simple skilled pilot like myself but I decided to make the leap and go for it and um, oh, it was definitely one of the most challenging jobs I've ever done but it was also really good fun you know to be able to challenge yourself like that and, and grow your skills and develop yourself more. All right and then yeah change, change countries change <laughs> roles and back into the military so uh, what was the what, what was the trigger for that was it a I don't know was it the the, the great uh, recruiting videos or, or what was it? <laughs> well I'd always wanted to move to Australia and I've actually been applying to Army Aviation for a number of years to try to get in through their lateral recruitment scheme. So I'm not sure if you're aware of, of, of the scheme at all, but basically the Defence Australian Defence Force has uh, a scheme where it recruits people from foreign overseas militaries that have skills and experience that they need or, or require just due to having a lack of personnel in Australia. And yeah, I was just fortunate enough that I had a contact, I knew someone, who um, offered up my resume directly to uh, the DG Avon or Director General of Army Aviation and got his pick of approval once he'd had a look at my resume and I managed to get an interview, got through the interview process and finally got a job offer. So after six or seven years of trying to get in, I was finally successful um, early in 2015 and then had to go through all the visa application requirements and we finally landed in Australia and I enlisted on the 16th of January, 2016. So, yeah, finally, after many years of trying, we got in. Fair enough. And that was straight to MRH, uh, NH Johnny? Yes, I had to wait six months for the next available slot um, on a course. Um, and in that uh, time period, they actually just gave me a Kiowa refresher. Not that I'd ever flown Kiowas before, but I got flying got to fly the Marty Kiowa and uh, yeah so that kept me busy for the first few months and it helped me I think transition into all the Australian rules and regulations and airspace and all of that that is quite different here than what it was in South Africa. How did the MRH sort of compare to, the, to you know to the things you've flown before so the Puma and, and everything else? Well I actually found it was a fairly good mix of the Puma and and the 109 that I'd been flying in South Africa. So the, the military A109 in South Africa was the LUH variant, which is full glass cockpit, four axis autopilot, and very, very similar systems and set up to the MRH um, over here. So it, it flew like a Puma. It was big and, and bulky and just 
brute force and brute power, but the systems inside and, and the cockpit layout was very much like the one and nine. So I found it a really good mix between the two, and I really, really enjoyed flying the MRH. It's definitely a, it's a pilot's aircraft. It's so many systems to help you. Um, and, yeah, I just absolutely love flying it. I've seen it up close a couple of times and uh, had a chance to look through them. And it's, you know, when you see, uh, I don't know, Battlestar Galactica or any sort of sci-fi show and there's a, you know, the uh, it just has that sort of spaceship type thing. Like we took the rotor blades off it and put some kind of, you know, stubby wings on it and uh, a fancy, <laughs> fancy space drive. It has, uh, I don't know, it just, just reminds me of, of something along those lines. It's, uh, yeah, it looks very pretty cool once you're up close. Yep. All right. So we'll cut bits and pieces there, and obviously you've jumped jumped out again um, back in, in City Street doing the Marine pilot transfer. So, yes. so seeing as you've been through this process twice in two different armies and two different countries, or I should say, you know, Air Force and the Army, what are some of the tips? So the first point I got here is is why do people get out? So not just your own self, but uh, the other people you worked with. What are some of the common reasons people get out of the, out of the military? Well, everyone's going to have their different reasons for leaving and for those that all they want to do is fly and continue flying, you do reach a point in the military where you start getting directed down a path where you'll become a desk pilot, not an aircraft pilot, or especially in Australian army aviation terms, uh, you know, you'll you'll land up in, in a command position, which means that your flying days are pretty much over or very limited. Um, a lot of people don't want that. A lot of people just want to keep flying. And you do reach a point where you have to make decisions to keep flying and getting out unless you're happy to be put into one of those positions. A lot of people also find that it's, you know, they just get a bit tired of the whole military situation and, and that it's just time to get out and, and try something different. Um, and then there's also the people that make the change for lifestyle. You are away from home a lot in the military it does require a lot of commitment from you being in the military and a lot of people make the change for lifestyle and, and family reasons. And, you know, getting posted around every couple of years does take its toll on the family. Um, so I found, I found that a lot of people made the change just to have a, a more stable lifestyle and be, be able to live where they want to live for as long as they wanted to live there. Yeah, that um, ticks off most of the reasons I can think of there. Um, what, what about what about timing in terms of getting out? You know, in terms of career progression for yourself in the, in the military, uh, the external job market. What would you suggest for people in terms of trying to time their exit? I definitely would suggest to wait until you've got that base fifteen hundred hours, and you're not going to leave and get a job with eight nine hundred hours in, into a competitive civilian flying market. So rather stay in the military and, and build up your hours, which are invaluable. Um, and don't leave unless you have a job to go to. It's crazy to to resign from a really stable life that the military offers in terms of job security and leave without having anything or, or anywhere to go to. I've remember sort of, you know, you have people who, who get bad posting news and that's when they pull the pin yeah. and get out. And then exactly as you're saying, they're then sort of stuck um, for a while. So, yeah, it's, yeah. I guess having yeah, having somewhere else to, to go. Uh, what about preparation? So both times, did you do anything different uh, when you left the Australian Army to when you left the South African Air Force? How did you sort of 
prep in terms of networking, getting your quals up to scratch, those things? Well, yeah, getting your quals sorted out is probably the biggest one and one that re- required a lot of effort, you know, both in Australia as well as in South Africa. The civil uh, regulators in both countries don't just automatically hand over a license. You know, you've got hoops to jump through to do that. So in terms of preparation, make sure that your logbook is all up to date and sorted out and make make CAS's life easy in Australia, is what I like to say. Uh, fill out all the paperwork as, as um, and get, get things sorted out early. Even if you're not planning on leaving, there's nothing stopping you from actually sorting out, getting your civilian civilian license um, sorted out before, well in advance before you leave. Something that you can just have, you know, lying around in a cupboard that you can pull out when you when you do decide to leave, because it is quite a lengthy process, and the regulator can draw it out quite consider- quite considerably if they want to. Yeah, it's it's not done on your time. Like if if you need it in a hurry, <laughs> too bad in yeah. many cases. So I think that's one of the things to start early. Yeah, as you said, whether you're planning on getting out or not, having all that stuff lined up, and. I guess when I left, I, I probably never really thought I'd be in a flying job again and I was really lazy and that sort of stuff. And so there's a lot of quals I probably could go back and try and get, but uh, the longer you leave it, I guess it's it's harder to try and dig up the paperwork for it. Uh, and oh. some, of, some of the things are so expensive, like to you know try and get – if you think of some of the things you do in the military in terms of night vision, formation, um, ship landings, all those sorts of things that are just part and parcel of flying in the military – uh, to get those yep. outside, uh, they're worth an absolute fortune. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah, don't do what I did. <laughs> Be more proactive and, <laughs> and uh, get the calls organised. And that's the thing, though. When you're in the military and you're flying every day and, and it's busy, you know, being in Army, especially Army Aviation, you are busy. You've got career courses. You've got so much other stuff going on. Um, but it's important to just keep that in the back of your mind that you need to, you know, start lining up all of that paperwork because you need to sit down with your CEO and he needs to sign off on all of it, and then it needs to go through the process of going through CASA and all of that. And it takes it takes time. And rather do it while you've got the time and you don't need it like yesterday to get a, to get a job or to sign the job offer that you've just got. Um, give yourself the time to do it. You know, get your exams done. Um, even if you don't go and do a flight test or, or, you know, get your instrument grading test done or anything like that, you know, just have all of that paperwork done ready to go so that if you do want to leave or you do happen to get a, a job offer that you can't refuse then it's all ready and and uh, makes your life a lot easier this one might be a bit controversial but you, you know you spoke about there's minimum time so about three months in terms of you know when you can resign to to get out and there's a whole reasons for that too because you might have critical qualifications that the you know the unit has to try and replace in that time but yeah. what would your advice be in terms of if you're thinking about getting out bringing that, with the, that up with the chain of command or raising that with like the careers advisor early. Do you have any, any thoughts around that? Well, I think it would depend on your career advisor at the time. I did have the conversation with my career advisor at the beginning of, of this year that, you know, I was possibly looking at getting out and I did, I had gone for an interview and I was possibly waiting for a job offer and you know, they they will, if they value you, they will try and keep you. Or if they've got what you want, you know, they will maybe do a bit more to, to ensure that you do get the posting that you want at the end of the year or at the end of your posting cycle. 
um, and all that. However, I think it all depends again on, on who your career advisor is at the time. Um, that's something I would judge on an individual basis. Um, and with the three months resignation period, that can also be weighed down to 28 days if you've got a signed job offer. So there are ways and means of, of getting around that three months, um, but there are requirements to that. And it does then put even more pressure on you trying to get all your discharge admin done and dusted and then trying to get all your CASA paperwork in order. It all Those 28 days all of a sudden feel like two days yep. trying to get it all done. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess it probably just comes back to the situation, but I definitely get the feeling that if you told people that you were getting out and you sort of had a longer-term plan and you gave people as much notice as possible, that you then start to get dropped off, uh, and maybe rightly so, but you get dropped off training courses and probably slip in the terms of uh, flying program uh, priority and things like that. Uh, so, oh, yeah, yeah uh, which is naturally because they're going to pump the resources into people where they're going to get a return. But uh, yep. I guess that's the other thing is you you have to, I guess, decide when you're going to tell people you're getting out because there is that sort of uh, effect that does happen. Yes, and that's pretty much what, what happened to me. We, we uh, yeah, the last couple of weeks, I didn't actually even get a final hurrah by flight in the MRH, which I was a bit upset about. But, okay, when you, you, it's just one of those things, really. Yeah, that happens. Okay, something that's really different, well, not, not really different, but often comes up in conversations is logbooks and logging of, of military time and civilian time. In South African Air Force, what were the rules around logging flight time? The rules were the same as the civilian rules here. So we logged basically from start to stop. In South Africa, so there was no big changes required between... Um, the civilian and, and military logbook. However, the, the logbook format themselves was, was different. In Australia, though, the logging of time is different. Where, you know, civilian, we, we log start to stop here, but in the military, it's basically chop to chop time or um, uh, basically from wheel, wheels lift to wheels land in the military. So there is an adjustment that you need to do um, on your Australian military flying time uh, that to bring it to civilian equivalent. So did you run a second logbook when you first got out from South Africa? Did you transfer things across? How, how did you do your logbook the first time? Yeah, so I did. I actually just invested in an electronic logbook because at the moment I actually now have four logbooks <laughs> yeah. that I have to try and run and manage. So I invested in, in an app called Logpen Pro and it gives me any logbook format in the world that I could ever want and it carries across the hours really easily and, and it's just it's it's a really it's a much easier way of managing my logbook now um, than trying to keep up with a paper copy and and all of that. So especially when I came over to the, the military in Australia, my civilian time in South Africa didn't count, only my military time counted. So then I had, yeah, it's just, it all became a bit of a mess. <laughs> so I found that an electronic logbook where I could just, you know, take out certain hours or aircraft types or days or whatever out of it was, was a lot easier than, than trying to manually do it on, on a paper copy. And did you add point one to the end of flights? Like, did you do any sort of adjustment for the Australian Army flying? To, for the silver so flying? You can add 
they normally add about a point two um, onto every flight. And to be honest, no, I haven't done it. Yeah, I never bought it. <laughs> I was talking to someone about it the other day, and I was like, oh, I, you know, I'm not really chasing hours uh, anymore. <laughs> but I was wondering if I was being a bit silly by not doing it. But, you know, I haven't done it. Um, but, yes, as a military army aviation, when you get out, you can um, add up to a point two for all of your flights that you've done. Fair enough. Um, what are other notes I got here? So what about any tips for resumes in terms of presenting the Defence Force flying or the quals and things you do into the civil world or any, any tips in general about doing resumes? My tip for resumes would be to ask a couple of your friends or former colleagues that are already out in the civilian world, ask them for um, a copy of their resume and it's really important to just keep it simple. Um, don't um, put in any extra information that's probably not necessary. Have a nice summary of your hours. You don't need to provide, you know, scans and or photocopied pages of your logbook. Just give a summary and just put in a caption or something along those lines that says, you know, logbook available on request. But the best tip would be to 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 ask a friend for a resume, you know, that's got out already, and and just take their format. And the cover letter is also really important. It's probably a little bit more important than, than the details on your resume. In your cover letter, make sure you cover off on all uh, the criteria listed in the job advert and how you meet or don't meet that criteria. And, you know, just ex give a bit of a brief history about yourself and, and, and who you are in your cover letter as opposed to putting that type of information in your resume. In doing the research for this, I found a LinkedIn article and I might get the same on Philip. Shantin uh, wrote this article. He had a couple of points there about things you can do, I guess, just to dress your quals or your hours up a little bit while, you, while you're in. And yeah. the notes I got there. So often, like, time over water is a big thing for the marine pilot transfer job, I understand. So, yeah. you know, again, in the, in the military, I never would have a separate column or anything for that. I guess that's where electric, uh, electronic logbook comes in. So over water time, uh, he basically said, so log all the ship landings, which we'd normally do anyway. Um, sling, so sling iterations or external load uh, yeah. iterations. Yeah. And then he was talking about the fact that we don't actually do that much unaided flying in the military. It's normally all on MBG. So you're saying to you know try and, and get a little bit more unaided time, whether it's you know point one or point two on the way back for a recovery from a you know MBG flight back into the airfield or something like that, just to bump up that unaided time. So I don't know. Was that useful tips? Was that things that you sort of recommend as well? Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I totally took for granted over water time. I'd uh, gathered in, in Army over here and I didn't log it at all, actually. And, yeah, now I'm in a job where over water time is what it's all about. Um, but I had my time from, from South Africa, which, which I utilised. But another important one that I thought about was actually, you know, single pilot time too. Um, if you are still in the military, there's not a lot of opportunity to fly a single pilot. And I found that a lot of guys that transition... Um, out of the military don't actually have that experience. So it's all been multi-crew stuff. So if you do get the opportunity to fly a single pilot, you know, whether it's if you go down on an instructor's course or QFI course or something like that, those hours are also invaluable to try and build up as much as you can. And you'd log them separately? Like you would just run an extra column somewhere? I think it's good just to, to show that you have that experience. It's not really about the hours, but, you know, the... the 
the organization that I'm working for at the moment, it's all single pilot stuff. And I'm finding myself, I haven't flown single pilot since for about four or five years now. Um, so it's, it's quite something getting back into flying single pilot. And I realized that a lot of the guys that come out of the military here have very, very little single pilot time. Maybe they, you know, they did a couple of solo flights in the Kiowa on their HTC course or, or something like that. But other than that, you don't really get a lot of it. So if you can get the opportunity to, you know, get some flying experience outside or something along those lines, you know, try and get some single pilot time just to build your own confidence and your own flying abilities and, and to be able to show a future employer that, that you've got some single pilot time behind you. Yeah, it's well even now doing the doing the training with people, it's very rarely I actually jump in a machine and ever fly up by myself. And it feels weird when I look across and there's no one sitting there because you're right. Most of my career has been in a crew or, or with uh, with students on board. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's kind exactly, of yeah. yeah, or passengers. So I very rarely I uh, sit there with an empty seat next to me. What what about using your network? Uh, any tips on because because again, just like you said before, when you got out of the the, the air force the first time and went into that HEMS role. There was already someone, you know, I don't know if you knew them from the, the Air Force beforehand, but especially here in Australia, many of the companies or jobs that you would be going into, and I guess, you know, the US is a, is a bigger market, but it's going to be similar for, for most militaries. There's going to be like a whole, whole cohort of people who have left before you that are going to be in some of the jobs that you're going for. So, yeah, how much did you lean on your network and, and any tips on, on using your network for that next job? Yeah, well, it's really important that you use the network if you've got it available to you. Um, and, you know, also to keep um, a good reputation in aviation circles. We often talk about how small the aviation industry is, and it really is that small. You're always going to bump into somebody, you know, that was ex-Army or that knows someone that knows someone that knows you. So use the network if you've got it. And even if you don't have a network, like I didn't really have much of a network being fairly new to aviation in, in Australia. But, you know, choosing your references that you put on your resume is also quite important, um, especially if you can choose people um, that may have the network that you don't have would be one one idea to use a network where you don't necessarily have your own network to use. And I don't think you'd underestimate that because I've had a couple of resumes come through for positions where I've had to look at it. And exactly that, I've known one of the referees, and yeah. to be able to, to be able to pick up a phone, ring them straight away, and have that connection, and I guess there's a level of trust there and things like that. So, having yeah, yeah I guess you you suss them out and find out who their connections are. But yeah, having someone that uh, the job you're going for that they they recognise the name and know the person as a, as a referee is massive. Yeah, so that's really you really should be putting a lot of thought into who you use as as your references, and. It's also, in a way, about their reputation too. You know, is it a good person, a good choice to have that person as, as your reference? You know, when they maybe booted out the military for some obscure reason and, you know, that, they might not be the, the best person to have even if they're a really good friend of yours. So really put a lot of thought into choosing your references on your resume because they do get called and questions do get asked about you to them. So don't assume that, that they're never going to get called because... They do. <laughs> how many different types are you flying at, at the moment? When you turn to work, how many, you know, do you, are you just back to the one type at the moment or are you in, in several, several aircraft? No, I'm flying two types at the moment. So I fly the Squirrel and the 109. Did that, I, I don't know, when you got out, 
was that weird? Because you'd been flying like one machine for like years, years and years straight to then have a day where you could get, go on several different aircraft. Um, that that just struck me as really weird getting out of the military. Yeah. Uh, it, it probably was more weird for me in South Africa when I first transitioned out because that's like uh, the 119 um, and then we had an EC-130 that I flew. Uh, so, yeah, in any day you'd just be jumping from one to the other and you were like, whoa, am I qualified to do this? Because in South Africa only the only um, QFIs were allowed to fly more than two types um, of aircraft. So, <laughs> yes, it is something to get used to and something to get your head around. But I enjoy it. I enjoy being able to fly different types. Like I love flying the squirrel because it's very hands-on and back to that good old hands and feet flying. Um, whereas the one and nine is faster and sleeker and a little bit more automated. So it's good having the best of both worlds, really. Have you ever looked at going back to fixed wing? Have you looked at any of the transition programs? Um, no, to be honest, I haven't. I'm not really interested in flying fixed wing. I really enjoy flying helicopters and, and that's where my, my passion is. Fantastic. All right, well, look, I think we've covered most of the notes that I had roughly around that. And I just thought it'd be an interesting uh, topic to have a chat with you because you sort of come at it with a fairly unique uh, background <laughs> for most people. I don't know, have you got any other tips for, for people, you know, things you wish you had known earlier in your career or uh, anything else you suggest for, for, you know, it doesn't have to be people leaving the military. It can just be uh, people looking to get into helicopters in general. Um, any tips for people getting into flying in general? Is that what you're saying? Oh, just things you wish you knew earlier in your career, whether that was military-wise oh. or, uh, yeah, just helicopter, helicopters in general. Oh, oh, you've got me on that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I wish I'd known how much continual study it was going to be. Um, even now, I've been flying for just over 15 years, and yet I'm still studying. Um, I'm still learning. I'm still constantly, you know, chasing not the next best thing, but I'm still chasing that knowledge to to better my own skills and and develop myself more. So I think if I had known how much work it would would be, <laughs> especially this long into my career, yeah. <laughs> I can't say I would have given it up. But I probably would have maybe gone fixed wing flying rather, where it's a little bit more stable and and pretty much more repetitive. Yep. Um, I did. I wouldn't give it up for anything. I absolutely love what I do, and I love my job. And yeah, that's this is what I do, I guess. And I'm, I'm enjoying. I'm, I'm sort of taking a bit of a new, a new branch in my career by going into human factors and all that. So I'm busy with my masters in that at the moment, um, and that's keeping me very busy on my days off, which is good. Um, and it's quite an exciting world to be in, um, you know, developing human factors programs and, and training people on it because it's just so important to what we do. And especially these days, and this is actually probably one piece of advice I give everyone, is, is these days it's not only about the hands and feet skills of a pilot anymore. I find more and more that employers are looking for the hands and feet, but in addition to that, they want everything else that goes with it. So they want someone that has a good safety culture within themselves as a person that, that, that's got an awareness of the human factors principles that they'll be applying in that job. You know, that, that they've got everything. They, they are good leaders. They're good communicators. And I think as a pilot, you really need to realize that you need to develop in those areas 
those non-technical areas, as we call them in these days, as well as technical flying skills. They're all equally important. That sounds like really, really good advice. So, Taryn, thank you so much for uh, yeah hanging out and, and chatting through some of those points with us. It's really been great. No worries, Nick. It's good, good chatting to you. It wouldn't be a Rotary Wing Show episode unless I tried to get a few resources together on the blog post to go along with what you just listened to. If you search for episode 78 at rotarywingshow.com, there are a couple of links to follow if you are going to or going through currently or thinking about transitioning out of the out of the, the military. The first one is an Australian-specific guide for ADF members. That outlines the, the different forms you need and the steps that you go through for CASA to recognise your qualifications. This is something I put together a couple of years ago and had some great input then from Scotty Summers. If you find anything in there that's changed, please let us know so I can go through and update that and keep it current. For those in the US, there are links on the blog post to information put out by HIA about their advice. Uh, it also provides some advice on, on what an aviation resume should contain and how to convert some of the, the military speak into something that the civilian sector would understand at, at a glance. There is an article titled Transitioning from Military to Civilian Aviation, 12 Steps to Ensure Success by Philip Shanton that I've included from LinkedIn that has some good advice there too. This is also one topic that I know many of you listening to can actually pitch in and share your own experiences and your own advice. If you've got a good tip that you wished you had known beforehand or that you found was invaluable for you, then consider leaving it as a comment on the blog post so that others can, can find it and learn from your own experiences as well. On Facebook, Damon Craven commented to get your ADF quals recognised by Clark or CASA well before leaving. It can take a while and you might find that you need to go back to them several times before they fully recognize everything that you're entitled to. Thanks, Graves. Also in the mailbag this time around, Chris Sharp from Black Wolf Helicopters in Guatemala had some great feedback about episode 77 on Sling Ops. Chris is a previous HIA Safety Award winner, so that was awesome to, to get a note back. And Dave Furfkins is working on getting his CPL in a Cabri G2. I think Dave's in the, in the UK. Uh, and Dave uh, basically found the discussion on extreme ownership and attitude with Adrian Park really useful in uh, his situation. On LinkedIn, I've been chatting with uh, James Geary, who is an instructor in the UK, and he regularly sets his students' homework to go and listen to the episode on uh, Cyclic Back with uh, Pete Gillies when they come up to uh, their emergency training uh, as they're going through their own course. In terms of thanks for all the support out there, I especially want to mention those on Patreon that are helping to, to fund the costs of hosting the episode files and, and the website. So Adrian, Jack, Arturo, Eric, AJ, Hal, John, Mark, Shannon, Kirillin, Jake, Chris, Gareth, Heath, Rendell, Kev, Tony, Peter, Jason, and Michael. Look, it's really, really appreciated, and I hope you keep getting value from, from listening. You can find all the episodes on the web at rotarywingshow.com and on Facebook if you search for Rotary Wing Show. Stay safe and I will catch up with you soon.